I will, uh, I will meet you in Hebrews. We're actually going to read a little more this morning than, uh, than I normally do. And the reason for that is because we're talking today about he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So I really want to focus on ascended, seated today, that Jesus both ascended into the heavenly realm and that he is seated at his Father's right hand. And I want to emphasize why that's important. And I, I pray as we begin that we not overlook this. I, I truly believe if last week when we talked about third day rose again, and I told you that's the, that's the fulcrum of Christianity. Everything spins off of that as far as I'm concerned. I felt like the Lord spoke into my heart something this week in regards to this message. Um, about ascended and seated, and that is that I think we suffer a severe vitamin deficiency as Christians because we don't have a revelation of the ascended Christ. And I don't mean a few of us don't. I mean most of us haven't heard a handful of sermons on the ascended Christ in our lives. And and. What I mean by that is not a message that told you Jesus went to heaven, but a message that tells you the theology of what it means that Jesus ascended into the heavens. Most of us, I think we have a severe deficiency in our Christian walk because without understanding the ascended Christ, we fill in the gaps with some bad theology. Since we don't really know what it means that he ascended and is seated, then where is he? Not only where is he, but what, a, what are we in the absence of a resurrected Christ? Without that information, that's a vitamin deficiency. That's a, that's a hole in your Christian soul and your theology that'll cause you to jam a lot of things in there. You don't have to go far to get some really bad eschatology, like how this whole thing's going to go down. And in my opinion, a big reason why there's some really bad eschatology is we haven't done a very good job preaching an ascended and seated Jesus. Because most bad eschatology, let me give you a little hint, most bad eschatology is rooted in the fact that we don't really believe that the kingdom of God is, is active. We think the kingdom of God is coming. And because we think the kingdom is coming, we create all kinds of theological scenarios to get us there. And that might even mean celebrating war or death or heartbreak or problems so that we can usher in. We'll use phrases like usher in the kingdom of God. And when you hear people say usher in the kingdom of God, that's a Christian vitamin deficiency because they don't have an ascended and seated Christ and they have to fill that with something. Because they're trying to figure out where Jesus went. And why is there stuff going wrong if the kingdom's here? And because we don't have an answer to that, because we don't have a good place to put him, we end up with a lot of things that we don't need. And so that's, that severe vitamin deficiency can't be fixed in one sermon, but we can start. It's like if you found someone that had a deficiency, you don't fix it. Like that with one meal or one shot or one dose of vitamins. But boy, you get them going in the right direction. And so I want to see us become a people in this era, in this, in this time, 
that realizes the importance of an ascended and seated Christ. And it, it reminds me of this. This is a text we won't read, but you know it. From John 20, Jesus comes out of the, the tomb. And this is perfect following where we were last week. Third day rose again. Jesus comes out of the tomb in John 20 and, and Mary sees him and thinks he's a gardener. Remember. And she grabs him. She tries to hold on to him. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. Now, when I was coming up in church, I heard it taught this way. Mary said to Je- or Jesus said to Mary, don't hold on to me because I've not yet ascended. Meant that Mary couldn't touch Jesus because if she touched him, she would ruin the sacrifice of the cross because he needed to ascend to the Father to present his precious blood. This is how I heard that taught. He needed to ascend to the Father to present his spotless blood, and he hadn't done it yet. And if Mary touches him, she taints the precious blood of Jesus, and he'd have to start all over. I I heard that taught so much, I didn't have any concept that there was another possible idea what Jesus meant. Let me present to you what he might have meant. I've finished the work. It's time to go sit down and rule my kingdom. You can't hold me here. You have to let me go to be what I came to the earth to be. It's not a don't touch me, you'll mess it up. She don't have that kind of power. You don't have that kind of power. You touch the resurrected Jesus, you mess it up. That that puts your touch far greater (laughs) than the finished work. No, it's Jesus saying you can't cling to what was. You got to let me go be what I am. I am sent you, Moses. Not I was. I am sent you. You got to go let me be what I am. So I ask you, what is he? And if he's not ascended and he's not seated, then what is he? Then he's hiding out. He's playing hide and seek. And he's in heaven just twirling his thumbs waiting on dad to let him come back to the earth and do something good. And I don't buy that. And one of the reasons that I don't buy that is because I truly believe in the kingdom of God, alive and well, on planet earth, with a federal head named Jesus, one with his father, king of kings and lord of lords. Oswald Chambers said, at his ascension, our Lord entered heaven and he keeps the door open for all of humanity to enter. I thought that was a pretty good spot to start today. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3. He, and I'm going to insert the word Jesus because we're talking about the Son here, the S-O-N. So we're talking about Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And He sustains all things by His powerful Word. That alone is one of the best verses I've ever seen in the Bible. Jesus is what God looks like, and He holds everything together by opening His mouth. That's awesome. But then you tack on four with that. He, or, or the middle of three, sorry. When He had made purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So when Jesus finishes the work on the cross, finished the work on the cross, he's not still working on your sins, according to this text. He finished the work for sins, then he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
And that seated position of Jesus tells us a lot about who God is. But before we get to that, go to Hebrews 12. Same book. I want to add a couple of layers to this today, okay? Because I want you to see that this is a, this is a gospel truth that is multifaceted in different parts of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I think the old King James says the author and the finisher, right? Famous phrase. I kind of like pioneer and perfecter even better. I think that's pretty sharp. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarded the shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, here's Hebrews doubling down on this phrase. Taken a seat at the right hand. He starts his book with it, Hebrews 1. We're getting to the climactic moment of Hebrews. He comes back to it. That the whole reason we're running this race, Jesus took our sins, we're keeping our eyes on the author and finisher, the, the pioneer and perfecter, He's seated next to his father. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's insert the church into the story. Ephesians chapter 2. This is the apostle Paul. This is the part that gets, it gets even better as far as I'm concerned. It's good news that he's seated. But that's only half the good news. I want to find out where I am in this. And it's not, I'm sitting down here. Before I read, I want to remind you of what we said in the introduction. If we don't have an ascended and seated Jesus, we'll put all kinds of stuff into our theology. And one of the things is, is if Jesus disappeared, what are you doing? Okay? And that will put you at a distance. You're here and he's way up here. And maybe sometimes he's way up here, depending on how you live. Right? But there's an alternate reality going on in the spirit that we all know is true. God's doing something behind the scenes. Where are we involved in that? Just people sitting down here living our lives, hoping Jesus will come back? Or are we aware of where we are in the plan of God? That's what Paul tries to accomplish in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 4. God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Unfortunately, a lot of people stop right there because they're really excited about grace. And I get it, man. Being excited about grace is a good thing. I'm saved by grace. But look what else happens. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul does not say that grace saved me and someday I'm going to heaven and I'll sit down with Jesus. Although that's a pretty popular thing to say. Now that you're saved, here's the good news. Someday you know you're going to go to heaven. You're going to walk around glory with Jesus. And then you're going to sit down with him next to the river of Jordan. And he's going to tell you all these truths. But Paul's got something better than that. Paul says you were saved by grace. You were raised with Christ and you're seated right now. This is 
present tense. You're seated right now with Jesus in heavenly places. But I'm looking at you knowing you're seated right here in a white chair. So which one is it? This is the, this is the reality of being a kingdom believer. If you believe in the kingdom of God, then you believe that although you're sitting in this room, in the realm of God's economy, in His Spirit, He sees you in Christ. Seated with Christ, meaning done saving yourself. Done fixing yourself. <laughs> Seated with authority over the enemy. So, so there's nothing in the realm of the Spirit that can dominate you Christ has already done the work and invited you in and you accepted that by grace he saved you, not by works, not by merit, not because you were smart, handsome, had a lot of money, went to the right church. Grace, grace found you in the midst of your foolishness, in the midst of your sin and your brokenness and your ignorance. Grace found you, saved you, raised you up with Jesus. Now that happened, he died 2,000 years ago. How could God raise you up 2,000 years before you were born. Welcome to the paradox of the kingdom of God. Because in Christ, he doesn't have a clock. He's not wearing a watch going, oh, I know what day and month it is. He steps into time as the timeless eternal one and invites you to come into what that would look like if you truly believed it. The reason why the ascended Christ is necessary is because that shows you not where you're going. That shows you where you are. And because we don't know where we are, we're obsessed in the church with where we're going. We're obsessed with going to heaven and missing hell. And we're obsessed with Jesus coming back physically on the earth to consummate all things by destroying the enemies and setting up a physical city called the New Jerusalem. And part of that is because we don't see the reality of an ever-present kingdom of God living out right now through each one of us with Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of His Father, inviting us into the life of God. And as I said to you last week, we are not called to change the world. We're too late. Jesus is the world changer. What we're called to do is live out the change that's already happened in us. To live it out. To show what that little acre of the kingdom looks like. The little acre called you, called your relationships, called your walk, your journey, and to live out of that space because he's an ascended Jesus. If you don't have the theology of an ascended Jesus, then you might say something like this. Jesus disappeared, but he'll reappear someday. Okay, that's what you might say. Jesus disappeared, but he'll reappear someday. But if you have an ascended seated Jesus you know that's not the story. You see, in Acts chapter 1, his disciples are standing with him on the Mount of Olives, and the Bible says that he ascended up from them, and they saw an angel, and the angel said, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? That same Jesus that went away will return in like manner. And a lot of us then have this idea that what that means is that Jesus drifted up and then disappeared, and then somewhere through the solar system, there was a little streak of light that went rushing out of the Milky Way and off to the place called heaven and that Jesus has been sitting there ever since collecting prayers and moving whenever people... And I don't believe that's what happened. And I don't believe that the Apostle Paul or the writer of the book of Hebrews believe that that's what happened. 
Jesus didn't disappear so that he can someday reappear. Jesus slipped off of where we are, this dimension of the natural, and stepped into the dimension of his Father, the place, because Jesus asked before he went to the cross, Father, return me to the glory I had with you before the world began. So all he did was slip out of this space and into the space of the eternal, where he is the I am. And when we are invited into Christ, we are then experiencing that life and living it out on the earth now so that the kingdom of God is a reality because Jesus is ascended and seated. Let me just give you a few things that I really want to kind of lock in on today on what this means to be ascended and seated. Number one, we are seated with Christ. And we just read this in Ephesians. We are seated with Christ in order to experience the goodness of God. Look one more time at verse 7. In the ages to come, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the fact that Jesus is ascended and that we are seated with him means that God is ever showing us in the ages to come. Paul's saying, I don't know what tomorrow holds. But there's another age coming and maybe an age after that and an age after that. And Paul goes, whatever that holds... God is going to be kind to his people through Jesus Christ. And I say amen to that. That God is being kind to us through Christ. So when you blame God for evil, you don't understand the ascended Christ. When you say God did this to teach me a lesson, Paul said God will show his kindness to you through Christ Jesus. Not God will show his backhand to you through Christ Jesus. Because the fact that Jesus is seated means the work is finished. And when you sit down, you're done working. Christ has finished the work and having seated himself now lives out through his people. I I, I think one of the great tragedies of Bible study, um, and I've grown into this over the years, because I had to go through a lot of iterations. But one of the great tragedies of Bible study is how we treat the book of Revelation. This book of scary monsters and future events and stuff that's about to happen. And the Revelation, and listen, you're not going to get no master class on Revelation in one sermon, no matter when we try it, but certainly not on a Sunday morning. But just let me whet your appetite with this. Book of Revelation tries to tell you right out of the gate two things that get ignored by almost every person that ever reads it. You won't get five verses into the book of Revelation, you'll learn these two things if you're paying attention. Number one, this is an unveiling of Jesus. The apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the word apocalypse. That means unveiling. That means, here's Jesus. You don't really see him. Revelation's going to go, ooh, look at this. Here's Jesus. Revelation. Reveal Jesus. We miss that. Once you miss that, then it's got to be about something else. Okay? And so if you miss that, then it's about whatever you want it to be. It's about whatever the news told you it was about. It's about whatever so-and-so's book told you it was about. You wouldn't have to read much farther, first couple of verses. And he says, these are the things signified that are to come. The root word of that are signs. So you're not three verses into Revelation and it tells you it's a book about Jesus full of signs. It's not a book about something else full of literal events. It's a book about Jesus full of signs. Signs are just signposts. They're not the real thing, 
Nobody that wants to see the world's largest ball of yarn stops at the sign and goes, we saw the sign that tells about the world's largest ball of yarn. And you'll go, yeah, but did you see the world's ball, largest ball of yarn? No, we just, we stopped at the sign. The sign's all we were looking for. And so the book is simply telling you about things through signs, not through little events. Why did I bring all that up? Not just to give you a revelation journey, but to tell you that if we had studied the book of Revelation with those two things in mind, Jesus and signs, when we get into Revelation chapter 5, we would notice that there's chapter 4 and 5, that there's the enthronement of God. We get to walk into the throne room in the book of Revelation and watch the lamb that was slain sit on the throne with a rainbow surrounding him. And all of the hosts of heaven bow down at him and worship him. And the rest of the book flows through him. Because John's crying early in the book of Revelation going, there's no one that can do what needs to be done. And they say, stop crying. There's one that can do it. And they show him the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when the lion turns around, it is as a slain lamb with blood dripping. And John realizes that the only one that can do this is the one who has died to do this. And you guess where it is? From the throne of God. So where is Jesus? Enthroned. So if revelation is just out in your future, then you're waiting on Jesus to be enthroned. It can't, you can't be waiting on Jesus to be enthroned and call him king of kings. Have you ever referred to Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords? Stop doing that if you don't think he's actually the king. <laughs> if you think he's the king, he can't be the king if he hasn't sat down on the throne. Only the king can sit down on the throne. So now that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, we put on our right hand in the, in the ancient world, they put on their right hand their most trusted servant. It's actually an old military term, okay? Because in the old military days, you held your, most, most warriors were right-handed. Even to this day, most people are right-handed. Apologies if you're left-handed, you're in the minority. doesn't mean anything. But in the ancient world, most people are going to fight with their right hand, their sword in their right hand, and their shield in their left. And so if a king went forth to battle, and kings battled, they didn't just sit in boardrooms, they went forth to battle, they put their most trusted warrior on their right hand because they didn't have a shield over there. And so their most trusted aide would stay to their right to guard the side of them that had no guard. That term got picked up over the years in literature. Right hand, right hand. We say right hand man. This guy's my right-hand man. What's that mean? Why isn't he your left-hand man? Because it's an old term. That means this guy gets the stuff I don't get. This guy does the stuff I can't do. This guy has my back. Right-hand man. When Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it doesn't mean that right now in, the, in heaven, God's sitting here and then over here to the right is Jesus and then over here to the left, maybe that's James or John. Remember, they asked, can one of us sit on your right hand and one on your left? No, what it means is, is that Jesus and the Father, Jesus is the very trust of the Father. He is the very hand of God. That's why Hebrews opens with, he's the express image of the Father. He's what God looks like. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father so that you will know that if you see him, you're seeing the Father. You're seeing access to the King. Let me show you another one. Acts chapter 2. I told you we'd have a little more scripture than normal this morning. There's just a lot of stuff. This is one of those that I feel like you got to go really fast because there's so much stuff you want to say about an ascended and seated Jesus to cram in. But look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. I just want to show you Peter addressing the crowd 
because I want to show you what flows forth from the right hand of the Father. Here's another very, very, this is another moment where we're vitamin deficient if we don't have an ascended Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you both see and hear. Look what proceeds from the right hand of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if we don't have an ascended and seated Jesus, then we don't have the Father giving the Holy Spirit as a gift. We might have the Holy Spirit as a taskmaster, as a sin finder. Anybody ever meet that Holy Ghost? Man, I did. Taskmaster, Holy Ghost. I got scared to even hear the word Holy Ghost. I don't I didn't, I didn't even know if I want to hear about the Holy Ghost because, you know, first of all, he's a ghost. And that's no... That's no fun. <laughs> he's not Casper the Friendly Ghost. He's, he's the Holy Ghost, which means wherever you're unholy, you're in trouble. Because Holy Ghost going to come in, find all your unholiness, and beat you upside the head with them until you come back to Christ. Because I saw the Holy Ghost as like the sheriff of heaven. Like, he's roaming around to get you. Did you notice that we gave attributes to the Holy Ghost that the Bible gives to the devil? He roams around seeking whom he may devour. In other words, he's a predator on the hunt looking for what he can eat up. And a lot of us taught the Holy Ghost that way. He's on the hunt. You never hide from him. He's always looking. He's like Santa Claus. <laughs> he sees you when you're good and he knows you when you're bad. And man, he's going to pay you back for it. You know, you're in trouble. You're good. You get a gift. You're bad. You get coal in your stocking. That's the way God works. Peter didn't see it that way on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. He is seated at God's right hand. And out of his right hand, he has given us the Holy Spirit. That's a gift. And Jesus said in the Gospel of John, when he comes, the Holy Spirit will lead and guide you into all truth. He will never speak of himself. He will only glorify me. He will convict you of the sin of not believing in me. And he will convict you of your righteousness in me. And he will convict you that there is a judgment that has already been exacted. Jesus said the Holy Ghost will do three things. Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because you don't believe in me. Righteousness because I'm going to go to my Father and you're not going to see me anymore. And you're going to need to be reminded that you're righteous. And the Holy Ghost is going to be the one that reminds you of that. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit like Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what's he still doing? He's still convicting you to believe in Jesus. He's still convicting you you are the righteousness of God in Christ. And he's still convicting you that a judgment's been exacted on your behalf. And if you don't have an ascended Christ, you're just going to make up stuff about the Holy Ghost. And we do. And a lot of what we're accusing the Holy Ghost of is the condemnation of the devil. Because we've been taught that that bad feeling you have, that's the Holy Ghost. That's the Holy Spirit making you feel like a dog. I think condemnation and guilt make you feel like a dog. I think the Holy Ghost will invite you into the loving presence of your Father. Receive His forgiveness. Know that you were loved. Walk into a newness of life. Because it's a gift. We don't earn it. It's a gift. 
Here's my final one. Back to Hebrews. Let's land where we started. I know you're on a journey today, moving around, flipping pages, learning your Bible right and left. Never going to be the same again, right? Hebrews chapter chapter 8, verse number 1. I'll give you a second to get there. Hebrews 8 is the amazing and incredible Better Covenant chapter. If you haven't read Hebrews 8 in a while, I can't recommend it enough. Spend some time in Hebrews 8 if you want to know what your covenant looks like. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what we are saying. That's a good place to end. The main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I'll stop there. All I really wanted to point out to you there is that here's the main point. We have one high priest who's seated. Now, why does Hebrews say high priest? Because the high priest was the top priest of Israel. They took the sacrificial on the day of atonement. They are the man that took the sacrifice into the Ark of the Covenant and offered it up before God for the entire nation. The role of the high priest. There were no chairs in the temple. Because you only need chairs if you're going to sit down. And you only sit down if you're not working. There were no chairs in the temple because the high priest never stopped working. And do you know why they never stopped working? Because people never stopped sinning. And there was always somebody needing to offer a sacrifice. Always, 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 always. So when the book of Hebrews says, now you have a high priest that took a seat. Well, you're still sinning. Right? Here comes the conundrum of the kingdom. You're still sinning. I thought the whole old high priest couldn't sit down because people never stopped sinning. Actually, that's only half the story. The high priest never sat down because people never stopped sinning. And in a world where they had to pay for their own sins, the high priest could never sit down. But if they could have just had a once and for all sacrifice, then even if people never stopped sinning, the blood of the one sacrifice would never stop working. And so the book of Hebrews says, we found him. His name is Jesus. And he's seated at his dad's right hand so that he can intercede on our behalf so that we can rest where he rests. Can you see how dangerous it is not to have an ascended and seated Jesus? Because if you don't have him ascended and seated, then you might be working for your own salvation. And you might think you've got to please God through all of these works and God's now mad at you and God's expecting your time and your money and your body and your mind and your stuff. And all of the things that we think God's demanding of us are things that grow out of knowing who we are. I truly believe that if you knew who you were in Christ, you would not fight giving into the things of God with your finances. You would not fight spending some of your time in his word and praying to him because you wouldn't be doing it to get God. You'd be doing it because you know God and you'd want somebody else to know what you know and feel what you feel. All of you are, are investors in the future. You're investing in the future of this space. You're investing, you invest in the life of your kids. You invest in the life of your retirement fund or your house, or we all do it. We're all investing in something. The children of God invest in the, in the spiritual future of those around them because they want there to be another generation gets to hear about the kingdom of God. And so they get, and that becomes part of what we do. And we, we read and we study and we pray, not out of a sense of I got to do this or God's going to be angry with me. But once we enter into the realm of I'm, I'm resting, seated at the right hand of the Father, 
let all of this grow out of me. How many of you found it's a much better space to live and to operate than to be functioning out of, if I don't do this, God's going to be mad at me. A seated priest means there's nothing left to do for sacrifice. But from his throne, here's the important part. I'm going to try to solve the little, if I can, the little conundrum I created for you, which is, why is there still so many problems in the world if the kingdom of God's come, right? Jesus is seated. The apostle Paul said he will reign until everything's been put under his feet. And once everything's put under his feet, he'll hand the whole kingdom back to God. And so Jesus is the federal head of the kingdom of God, seated and putting under his feet every single thing in the realm of the spirit. So there will come a time at the consummation of all things when Jesus performs what Peter called in the Greek apokatastasis, the restoration of everything. I look forward to that day. I'm living in anticipation of that day. But that's just on my timeline. You understand what I mean? That's just on our clock. In the realm of the Spirit, he, He's finished everything. I'm alive both in the realm of the natural and the realm of the Spirit. You, some people hear that and they go, this, this is crazy. You Christians are kooky. Welcome to following Jesus. That's what they said about Jesus' followers. You're nuts you think you found them. You think this is the walking embodiment of what God is? You're crazy. You, you signed up to be a part of a crazy group of people. I mean, a crazy group of people that believe that they only exist in one space, that they have a spirit, that that spirit is tapped into the spirit of the living God, and that they can live out of that now. That it's not just something they can wait on someday, but they can actually start to live out of that and experience the life of God on this earth. I talk about an ascended and seated Christ. It excites me because I realize that if he's ascended, that means this isn't it either. It also means that if he's ascended and seated and I'm seated with him, then there's more than meets the eye. And so when I go function in the kingdom of this world, it's not the only kingdom. And Jesus showed me what the kingdom looks like. So when you listen to Jesus talk, he's speaking. This might be the most important thing I've said today. Okay. When Jesus speaks in the Gospels, he's speaking out of, he's speaking from the kingdom of his father. That's why his stuff sounds backwards. To be great in the kingdoms of the world, you got to lord power. To be great in my kingdom, you got to wash feet. And everybody goes, that's just stupid. You're not going to be great if you wash feet. Jesus goes, welcome to the kingdom. I'm speaking from a different place. I really think the early church got this in ways we don't. First John says, um, I'm not going to look it up. Um, first, <laughs> this is what happens when you wing it on something. But first John says that uh, with, with a great love, he hath loved us. The Greek word there that John uses is with a love that's out of this world. It's like an alien love. I think the early church got it that they were dealing with a God that's unlike anything they had ever seen. They weren't dealing with Caesar. They were dealing with a God who loved them with a love from out of this world. And so they just accepted that. We're an out of this world people. We're not a people that can be defined by all the definitions of this world. That's why when you start to see the kingdom through Jesus, and then you listen to Jesus talk, you don't see Jesus making demands of you. You see Jesus telling you the constitution of the kingdom you belong to. Like in your realm, it's okay to do this. But where I come from, here's how we do it. That's, that's the way I want to say it. All right, let's land right there. Sometimes I find it, just searching, I find it. All right, I found it. That's Jesus saying, here's how you do it. But where I come from, here's how we do it. 
Here's how you do it. They poke you in the eye, you poke them in the eye. But where I come from, we love our enemies. And it's going to sound so foreign that we'll go, that won't work here. I heard a pastor this past week say, I've stood up into my congregation and I told them Jesus principles. And I had a man approach me afterwards and said, where'd you get those leftist talking points? And he said, I just quoted Jesus. And he said, instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. They said, that won't work anymore. This was in the church. This wasn't at the tavern or the barber shop. This was in the church where they went, well, that won't work anymore. And I, that to me is my great fear. That when we're confronted with the Christ of the Bible, our natural response is, that's well and good, but that doesn't work anymore. You can't just love people like that. And, I, and you know what? When we encounter that sort of resistance, it's just evidence to me that we have been so infiltrated by the kingdoms of this world that the kingdom of Christ actually sounds loopy. <laughs> it sounds off to us. And that's why I think we la I landed on that where I come from. And, he, and, and it's easy then for us to go, well, you're not where you came from, right? Where I come from, here's how we do this. And we go, well, you don't live there anymore. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua said. And we must make the same choice. He's ascended and he's seated. I know I went a long time this morning. Longer than I've been normally going with you on Sunday morning. But it's okay, I hope. I didn't see anybody pass out. I saw a couple eyes droop. That's understandable. I went a long time. I'm really hoping to challenge you when you leave this space to start to see Jesus as ascended and seated and then wrestle with what it would mean if you believed that. You know, I told you last week, wrestle with what it would mean if you really believed Jesus was alive. Now I invite you to wrestle with what it would mean if you really believe that right now he's finished the work. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's just inviting you into the Father's life. He's showing you the kindness of God through Jesus. He's giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would you live like if you really believed that? And I don't think it should scare you. I think it should excite you. If you really believe there's a place that he comes from where they do things differently and that maybe I could tap into doing them that he, like he does and that if I could, it would be a challenge in this world. But what might this world look like? Would you pray with me? Just, just bow your heads and concentrate for a moment on an ascended and seated Jesus. All right? I don't know what that looks like to you. It's not really important to me what it looks like. If it helps you to imagine there's a big throne in heaven and there's a big bright white light called God and then right next to him is Jesus with his nails, great. If that helps you, you visualize that. Make that your, make that your sign, like the book of Revelation says. It's okay. What's really more important is not what you got that looking like. It's, what you it's, it's the one in whom you believe that's seated at the right hand of the Father. And whom you believe isn't still running around. He's not in a punching match with the devil. Him and Satan fighting it out. No, if he's seated, he's finished. 
He's not agonizing over your failures. He's seated. He's not trying to figure out how he's going to fix stuff. He's seated. Out of his seat, out of his seated space, everything's being put under his feet. Now I want you to envision that everything being put under his feet is like an ottoman. <laughs> that Jesus' feet is resting on all that afflicts you. All the pain going on in the world right now being pushed under the feet of Jesus. You might say, how do we get it there? We don't. It's not our job to change the world. What we do is live out what Jesus told us. And in that way, we represent the one from another country. And all things are being put under his feet. Father, thank you for whatever that visual is in the heart of your church right now. Thank you for however you want to do that. And I ask you, Father, to make that process a part of their week. As we enter this secular holiday of Thanksgiving, may we make it a sacred holiday of thanking you that you finished the work on our behalf. Of thanking you that you're seated. That you've done all that needs done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.